Hi, hi everyone. I'm really happy to be here, excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a really great group of uh, kick-ass speakers and a cool audience. So, uh, All right, let me uh, talk a little about myself. Uh, I started my career in industrial design, uh, designing furniture, gadgets, appliances, uh, nerding a lot on uh, material science, ergonomics, physics, and reading a lot about design pioneers like Donald Norman, Victor Popanek. So please bear with me when I uh, channel, my, channel my inner industrial designer here and there. Then I fell in love with interaction design, human-computer interaction, and software development, and then start to design more interactive systems and start to think about products that uh, people really love and making software really lovable and more human. And six months ago, I joined uh, Microsoft. I joined the Wunderlist team post-acquisition, uh, building productivity tools and um, you know, messing with computing, um, computing powers like Cortana, uh, Microsoft's artificial intelligence. And before that, I was living in New York. I was working at Foursquare as product lead, designing Swarm, uh, which is a social app for checking in to places and sharing your location with friends, and also Foursquare, which is a local search app for discovering places. Uh, so in the next 30 minutes, I am going to talk about what users really want, uh, how really designs sit in the middle of art, science, and technology. And, you know, we will discuss our brains, our perceptions, and our bodies. Hopefully, I'll be triggering your left and right side of your uh, brain. And sometimes I'll be telling stories, and you guys will be thinking, like, okay, what the hell is she talking about? But towards the end, it will hopefully make sense. We will think together and have fun together. So, sounds good? Cool. Let's start. And uh, how many of you guys are designers? I'm hoping like the majority of the room. Cool. So a couple of ground rules uh, that you will uh, hopefully appreciate. You will not see any Venn diagrams where I'll be explaining like disciplines like user research to you. Or you will not hear the word delight because we are really misusing it, overusing it in really wrong context. And you will not see any icon art, uh, clip art, because it just hurts our eyes. We are designers. Um, so, yeah, let's start. Interestingly, a very little known fact about technology is where it's really originating from. And it comes from Greek, like shocker, like all the good words coming from Greek. But techne really means actually art, craftsmanship, and the manner, the behavior of how something comes to life. So we sometimes really tend to see technology as cold, this evil thing that really puts a distance between us, between humans, but it actually originates from a very human place and crafting something really meaningful. So we should really see this as art-challenging technology, but also technology-inspiring art and human life. And, uh, you know, innovation doesn't just come up with uh, numbers and equations. It, it's coming from, again, a human place. And similarly, as the invaders, as the creators um, of good products, us, we sit in a very unique place. Our discipline is very, very unique at the intersection of all these disciplines. We are like artists. We are very opinionated, very gutsy. We make all these, like, decisions. And 
while we are also relying on user feedback, analyzing business models, and you know, implementing technological novelties. And you can see that in other professions too. Like I really admire winemakers, you know, especially the old world winemakers doing agriculture, really looking at the science of fermentation while really romanticizing bringing poetry and wine consumption. Or similarly, like the visionary architects from the early 20th century, like Frank Lloyd Wright or Miss Van der Rohe, how they were religiously studying science while designing space for humans. Um, so you also see this new shift in technology where uh, our industries start to care more about art, really start to care, um, think consciously about art and science coming together. So now you see every startup has a copyright department where they really work on the language. Or you see, you know, companies, big companies hiring poets. And artificial intelligence is now driven by the collaboration between poets and, you know, engineers. Like, it's really fascinating, right? Because now we know that personality is the real user experience and every interaction is a conversation between our products and our users. And, um, you know, for uh, design, it's exactly the same, too. Like, we should start calling ourselves as craftsmen because we craft experiences that evoke emotion. We design software that speak human and relatable to humans. And you know that joke, like, with the vegans? Uh, how do you know if somebody's vegan? Don't worry, they fucking tell you. I see us like that, too. We are designers, but we are also proud to be designers because our job is really unique. We shape people, people's lives, and, you know, we remove the artificial from the craft, and, you know, this also requires sciencing the shit out of everything. And, um, you know, nobody wants to be this, right? Nobody wants to build average tools, average product and experiences. So I want to share a few tips uh, of, um, and pieces of my design journey that really helped me a lot to design good experiences. So let's start with the first chapter. Actually, what our users want is just to trust us. Um, you know, we, we've seen all these products that have the buzz for a month or two and then they just disappear in the black hole of fast internet and digital commodity uh, consumption. We don't want to be one of those products. We want to create this long-term relationship with our products and it all starts with trust. And it's this like magical words, you know, right? It's not like assessing uh, when we are thinking about if you should trust somebody. It's not like we are thinking about their mathematical ability. It's a completely different different brain function. And, you know, from a cognitive science perspective, also it's one of the very complex emotions where, you know, lots of, part of parts of the brain is very active, you know, from, um, from judgment to, you know, surprisingly, surprising a pleasure center. So when we are actually making trustworthy products, we are creating happy users that take lots of joy out of our, uh, out of our products. Uh, so the bottom line is users want to feel confident in their choices and us as designers, we want to build software that people can trust where we don't really let them down. Uh, so for Wunderlist, one of the major um, trust really comes with the fact that we can safely store their information. Your information will not get lost and your lists, your content, your to-dos will always be avail available, sync immediately on every device. So 
to be able to do that, we've been constantly working on the sync technology, and sometimes we really had to go back to the drawing board and rebuild our own like infrastructure, our backend um, backend system. But this was all really at the end to be able to create that experience that was reliable, that was trustworthy, and leaving this good feeling in the user that you know our product got their back. Oh forgot to click for the video. And uh, I also want to share a few tips about Foursquare too. And uh, for the, tr the trust in Foursquare was coming from the content, was coming from the privacy aspect of things. And you know, when it comes to tips, reviews, uh, we have the system uh, where people can leave tips about the place, about the food that they have, or the experience that they gain. But there was this problem that we saw at Foursquare. People were always raising their eyebrow, like, okay, is this review, is this tip legit? Is it written by somebody in Bangladesh for 10 cents a piece? Or the owner is opening up all these fake accounts to praise his or her? her place. So constantly we were trying to create this trust around the content. And, uh, you know, first we tried these like little signals, little actions like saving and um, hearting, liking a tip. So as the users, you see like, oh, this tip has been liked or saved by a lot of people. So this must be a good tip. And then, you know, we start to see like, okay, we need something simpler because, you know, there was this like very, very blurry line between saving and liking. It was not really very distinct from each other. So we thought about like rating. You either like a place, you either dislike a place, and that's it. And then, you know, as we were moving forward, then we start to realize like this voting. In every community-driven platform, you see people upvote each other or downvote each other. And then we brought the signal, and it really worked fine. And then we start to see people, you know, really liking it, really trusting us at the end. And, you know, in this way, we were trying to gain this trust in our user-generated content by, as designers, creating the right signals for the users to weigh this to make a better informed decision. And trust is even, even more tricky for Cortana, for example, Microsoft's artificial intelligence, because she's so smart, she knows so much about you, she analyzes analyzes all the semantic data around your email, around your calendar. She knows where you are. She knows your agenda. But when she gains all this power, of course, like the users were like, you know, is she going to use this for good intentions? And it's also the psychologically, you know, we are always uh, watching these like sci-fi movies and we think the end of the humanity is not from global warming or some asteroid coming in and destroying our world or some epidemic happening. We always think like robots will take over. These cool looking gadgets will come and be all evil on us. So it was very, very important to create that trust in Cortana too. So as designers and technologists, we were really trying hard to forge that relationship based on trust. And to be able to get there, there were a lot of disciplines involved from a global staff of ethnographers to uh, voice actors to even like playwrights. And um, you know, our aim was trying to create that cultural sensitivity and this trustworthy, positive relationship. And you know, she she was she was really getting there. She was getting chit chatty with you. She was very conversational with you. She was making jokes. You can ask her who her daddy is, and she would say Bill Gates. 
Um, and, you know, we should really treat every interaction as a conversation between the machine and the user. And we already know how to speak with one another, right? Like language has been the first human interface. So why don't we really use this, um, this concept as language conversation really driving the experiences? So Cortana has become very dialogue driven over time. And uh, let's talk about this uh, second chapter, uh, which is uh, delivering what you promise and really empowering your user. Uh, so promise is a very tricky word, just like trust. Um, um, we, really, we really weigh our decisions, again, based on people really keeping their promises, really delivering what, um, what they promise. And, uh, you know, it's, again, like a very emotional state because uh, you see there are consequences of good behavior and bad behavior, and this is how we maintain our social, social order from day one, right? And interestingly, there is a study by this Dutch uh, researcher, Manuela Viet, uh, shows that uh, she, she talks about how betrayal of trust actually pushes our buttons to seek revenge. It, it sounds really, really... Um, you know, really, really empowering, and really like we need to t we need to keep keep our promises. We really need to uh, consider the user state because the consequences are very serious, and we don't want for us um, betrayal would be bad store reviews or angry tweets or bad PR amongst friends and family, and uh, at the end users abandoning us, and we don't want that, right? Uh, so with Wunderlist, one of our biggest promises is obviously productivity, um, empowering the user to be productive, to really motivate them, and to carry, carry them to the state of uh, getting things done. And again, along the lines of cognitive science and productivity, um, a Hungarian psychologist, uh, Mihail Csikszentmihalyi, recognizes and finds this um, concept of flow. Uh, how he defines this flow is basically a state of concentration and deep absorption with the task in hand or with the situation, which really leads to deep enjoyment and creativity and total involvement with life. And you can call this as like being in the groove or being in the zone. And as designers, I'll in translate this as the model, as the flow for no bullshit product. We should really think about how to minimize it's very basic, how to minimize apathy, anxiety, worry, and maximize the relaxation and this deep enjoyment and help people get things done while they are still uh, having a good time. So for Wunderlist, uh, we managed to do so by uh, designing a very simple layout and really getting out of, the, out of the way, out of the user's way, removing the distraction and integrating seamlessly into their lives. And, you know, there is intention behind every, uh, every decision here. Layout is simple. You have one um, navigational menu on the side. You have this middle big view of task entry and um, your list view, and this third view of just like a streamlined view of your task details. So very focused and very simple. And this intention was, whoop, this intention was even, um, in the smallest details, uh, like the task entity. All right, yes, 
I have a trouble with videos today. Uh, but yeah, this intention was even in the smallest details, like how to create that tangible connection with the task and the user. Because we saw that when, um, you know, we see it in psychology too, people tend to create a lot of uh, tasks and create like a long list of things and then really become overwhelmed. So how can we create that task as a more like an entity that has a more weight and would make you more conscious about what you're really entering. So that emotional attachment comes with designing the right form factor for this task. And similarly, uh, at Foursquare, the real productivity uh, and the flow was coming through speed. Because, you know, Foursquare is about finding places to go, finding places to discover. And the reality is, when people are looking for a quick bite during their lunch break, they, did, they do that in seconds. When they are looking for a place for um, Sunday brunch for their Mother's Day that they forget, they do it in minutes. So to be able to gain this speed and experience, we were constantly looking at the flow. We were constantly looking at the motor and the cognitive load that we are creating on users, like how many swiping, how many tapping, how many uh, typing was involved is involved in all these actions. And in this example, as you can see, if we know that, people are constantly looking for coffee, coffee shops. So why do we force them to tap the search, trigger the keyboard, type coffee? Why don't we make it more accessible and easier to see and reach and make it a, um, a part of the navigation? And we know that all the freelance bees are coming out around noon looking for coffee shops that have Wi-Fi. So why don't we create this filtering mechanism and really put it right on the front end center and make it easy for the user to get into that flow of finding a place? And Yes, a successful design is really a conversation with the content. The big promise is not only the good quality of content, the big promise for our users is also creating that emotional, emotional attachment, that deep connection with the user uh, and the content. And you know, let's be real, people filter things out automatically. We are even evolved in a way that we have a limited vision, we can only see 140 degrees, we have a limited store capacity for our memory, uh, you know, even look at the way we write down our numbers in chunks, right, so that we can remember. Uh, so when this is the hard, cold reality, harsh reality of our evolution, so we really need to be more mindful about um, creating the right bridges between the user and the content so that the content becomes more meaningful. And, oh boy. Creating, creating that meaningful connection is so hard in the digital era. A quick example would be like, think about your record collection. Any, any vinyl fans, any record enthusiasts around here? Like you would, you would feel, you would feel the, uh, the fact that, you know, every record that you own comes with a memory. You remember, you know, the time, the people that you were with or that store that you get it from and then compare it to your Spotify. I have no idea how many songs, how many albums I have on Spotify. And this doesn't really mean Spotify is a bad product. It's really great. It's so functional. But what I'm trying to say is in this digital era, it's just hard to make that bridge, to really sit in the right, right place in the spectrum of functionality and emotion. emotion. So 
designing the content in this smart and emotional way was, again, very important for Wunderlist. And one of the things that you constantly see, in, um, again, in human psychology in this, is this incredible fulfillment of creating things, adding to-dos, creating tasks. But you know, we are so busy organizing them, then there is such little time really left for us to actually get those done. So uh, to be able to really, uh, again, give the time and make that connection for the users with their to-dos, we were relying on this little thing, the red ribbon, which is a book which is coming from inspired by this bookmark, which is this like tool that we've been using for centuries, right? And it, it had the really the perfect metaphor of um, keeping you in place, uh, making you remember where you leave things at. And with this little connection, people were able to prioritize things. People were using this in the right way that they were, uh, they were emphasizing the to-dos that they really needed to get done uh, in a quick and fast way. Um, so, you know, another way to look at deep connection is, like Ingrid is saying, is through emojis. You know, just let your user customize, personalize their content so that they would feel more attached to them. And even really little things matter. Like instead of seeing a standard list icon for their trips or for their favorite TV shows, let them put a little emoji because we all love emojis, right? And going back to deeper connection, we were having the same challenge at Foursquare, especially in Swarm as well. Because when you look at how people share locations, it's also a narrative. Every location share comes with who you are with, where were you going, how were you feeling, what was the occasion. So when we were looking at different, different ways to show this location, we really didn't want to have like a long list of check-ins where people can scroll through and see where their friends are. We created this new system, this new neighborhood grid system where people can see people who are close to them. So um, we were putting close distance people together, thinking that maybe it would encourage you to meet up and hang out with them, just knowing that they are two minutes walking distance from you. So this was a different way to look at the location, to bring more emotion and to bring more encouragement for the user. And another way to empower your user is through the power of words and language. So according to Mark Pagel, an evolutionary biologist, um, he talks about how we evolve as homo sapiens and create our own languages, actually not to only communicate and survive, but also create the signal of our tribal background, of our culture, of our ethical and moral values. So when this is the case for human beings, when language really becomes our identity, why don't we think the same way for our products as well so that our products can become more lively with a personality? And nerding out on more on linguistics because this is really fascinating, in the early 20th century linguists, they were talking about how we read, write, affect the way we live our lives. So the languages that, for example, didn't have yellow and red as different as different words, they were people speaking that language were also having a hard time distinguishes, uh, distinguishing those colors in real life too. Or according to the econo economist uh, Keith Chen, he talks about languages like Chinese and Finnish that doesn't have a tense, 
actually affects people's lives as well. So in Finnish and um, Chinese, you see they don't have a future tense, uh, unlike, uh, unlike English. And they were looking at this research of how people were saving money. And when you don't have the future tense, there is no distance psychologically in the way you think about today and future because they sound the same. So they were looking at how people were saving more money in China and Finland compared to compared to English-speaking countries. It's so drastic, right? Like the impact of language. So when we see the language, the power of words, um, we should really fully take advantage of that in our design journey too. So in, in Wunderlist, it's really cheesy to say this, but um, our mission is to make better versions of people, to really help them to become better humans. And every little detail really counts for this, like from how you name folders, from how you position uh, lists and you know all the naming conventions really add up to this mission. And we saw that smart lists that are created with um, folder names like today or this week really force, force the user to think more consciously about their capabilities. So if I see a to-do in my today list, if it's too long and overwhelming, then it really makes me think like, okay, this is outside of my capacity and I will start thinking more consciously about my responsibilities. So the existing of words or finding the right words really made a huge impact on the user experience. And again, similarly in Foursquare, um, when leaving a tip uh, at a place, uh, we really wanted, uh, wanted to make people think, trigger the right buttons in their brain. Um, so, you know, instead of just leaving a blank slate for, okay, tell us what you think, we really wanted to um, use the right semantics. And even using the word good here, the positive good semantics of this word, pushed people, encouraged people to think about, okay, what was that good food that I had at that place? Or was the service good? So really making them think about the experience. And again, on Swarm, like I said, every location share is a narrative. We really want to make this experience social for everybody. So when each location share is a conversation, we were trying different things to get a status uh, from the user. So when you're checking out a place, also tell us how you're feeling or who you are with. But finding the right wording, finding the right language for this was a little bit of a challenge, you know, because it's really limited when you ask, who are you with? Because not all the time you're at places with people or how are you feeling? But, you know, sometimes people don't want to share their feelings or their emotions. So we finally nailed it down after a lot of A-B testing that actually something simple like what are you up to was really enough for the user to just have that split second for us to um, tell, give us the right social message. All right, it's really great. We are making utilitarian, functional, and empowering products, but what's that special sauce? What's that What's that little like sweet spot that really lead to lovable products, remarkable, iconic products, that pure, genuine, real craft? Where does it really live? So I'll be talking now about more authenticity and inspiring uh, experiences. And you know, there is another fact that we are all social beings driven by emotion. You see that from the first second a baby is born. Maybe the baby's vision is blurry, but 
baby still prefers the faces and can recognize the mother or prefer the sound of voices uh, compared to non-speech voices. And, um, you know, we are all emotional beings. As humans, we like things to be simple. We want to laugh at things. We want to have fun, enjoy our time while we are achieving things. And also we want the systems, the products to do that little petting on our backs and really make us feel rewarded when, when we are accomplishing things. That really brings us to this dilemma of productivity. So when we are designing a product for productivity, uh, we run into this a lot because you know, people think productivity is not even a sexy word. It's really uncool. People always think about productivity tools like, oh my god, okay, I have to do this task. Okay, I have to pay this bill. I have to do this thing for work or you know, bad things will happen. There's always this association of punishment also. But this is actually very wrong. Productivity can be very emotional as well. It's really funny. Um, when um, our social um, media support team uh, came to us with this little thank you email of a mother of a seven-year-old seven girl, how she was using Wonderlist to make a catalog of her dolls. I mean, that was really, really cute. And that's the emotion that we expect to have with the user. So when we are thinking about this as a task management, we are also thinking about how people are using it for, you know, planning their honeymoon. They're, they are giving all these personal details of their trips and putting all these like life goals. Another thing also, you know, we don't really want people to focus on the short-term short -term goals like, okay, I have to buy milk for, um, for my child or, you know, I have this dinner party that I have to organize and buy things. Here is my, here is my list. But there is also the long-term goals like, hey, there is this like bucket list, the places that I want to go, the languages that I want to learn, the hobbies that I want to gain. So actually both the system, content, and the channels can be very emotional in productivity as well. And authenticity, inspiration, is multisensorial. Um, when we talk about emotional success, not, whoa, that's a little, that's a little too high, but. <laughs> All right, are you guys ready? Another one is coming? No? All right, but it's really multisensorial. <laughs> All right, are, are you guys back to reality? Are we good? We survived this, right? All right. Um, but, yeah, where, where was I? All right. <laughs> so when you complete a task, Wonderlist triggers this twinkling bell. Normally, it's better for the eye, but for this moment, it wasn't really that rewarding. It didn't really feel uh, that uh, cheerful. But there's also a very deep science behind this. So actually, behind this thing, we have the C major 7 chord, which really stands for, uh, when you look at the characteristics of this chord, it stands for purity, naivety, as well as happy, and musicians compare this to children's cheerful talk. So I don't want to nerd out more on the uh, sound engineering side of this, but we, when we were really looking at the um, synesthesia aspect of this too, like how audio triggers certain visuals in our brain, 
C major 7 was also triggering this nature, landscape, tranquil kind of images in our brain. So we were really hitting the jackpot. While we are making you happy when you accomplish something, we were also subconsciously affecting you in a way that you feel relaxed and you're like, yes, I got that shit done and I feel really good and relaxed. So, you know, it's, it's really fascinating, right, when you talk about senses. Uh, so when I joined Wunderlist, um, one of the things that I kept hearing from, um, from my team was, um, you know, make it more Disney, make it, make it more like Pixar. And what they mean, meant by that was really clear to me. Like when you look at Pixar, they make all these amazing movies with, you know, making millions of dollars and, you know, really, really creating these like fascinating worlds and wonders in front of our eyes. And while they are, again, shitting the science science of everything. And one of the Pixar uh, characters, Wall-E, uh, we were always relating ourselves to because, you know, Wall-E is a garbage collector. doesn't sound very sexy, right? But he still has so many emotions, and he doesn't even maybe have a traditional mouth or eyebrows or eyes, but he was still able to create that emotional, emotional bond with us. So this is, this is where we start uh, putting more thought into motion and the little big details at Wunderlist. And, you know, motion is, again, another, like, overused, um, overused word with bad reputation. But when you look at the actual underlying meaning of animation is given, giving breath, life, and soul. And in that sense, little elements were giving soul to, for, to Wunderlist and really making it feel more alive. And you know, that like little twinkle, that little notification bell that shows you when you have, when you have something new coming in your inbox or you know, bringing that like refinement, that polished feeling. In, in Zen Buddhism, we have this concept that we call a uh, beginner's mind, which refers to having this attitude of preconsumption and uh, lack of preconsumptions and uh, having this like refreshing mind and eyes to things, um, to things. And I also call this the baby's mind, you know, how they can be so fascinated by these like little things and the possibilities are endless for them. So when I think and read about this, I immediately thought, think about like how can we create this beginner's mind in our users so in foursquare we used to have badges and you know some people were feeling very nostalgic about badges so we created this little experience for them where they go down the memory lane of their badge trophy and then there is this dust because badges are old now but they still want to see them so there is this like cute interaction of swiping the dust and voila, you have, your, you have your badges again. So this was just like one example, one single moment of bringing that fun and bringing that nostalgia in the experience. And similar to this uh, very familiar way of interacting uh, with the real world and bringing that natural interaction in the digital experience is how you collect um, how you collect coins when you check into places. There is this little you know, piggy bank kind of metaphor, like you used to collect money when you were little. Uh, when you were little, so you know, it's again like um, partnered up with the right audio and with the right visual. It's creating this real life mechanic, turning that into little emotional experiences. And <laughs> and um, there is this also this quote from uh, one of the Disney animators how. Um, appeal is so hard and magical, but you know it when you get it. 
And similarly, I'm a sucker for food shows, and when it comes to like famous chefs, I just like my jaw really drops and like try to listen every bits and pieces of wisdom that they uh, that they have. And this is Ellen Passau from uh, La Parge, uh, Arpege from Paris, um, one of the one of the top chefs in in the world basically. And he talks about how he n never really writes recipes. He never really follows the trends and this the lack of recipe really forces him to innovate himself, to really think different ways. So it's the same thing for us too, uh, really pushing the boundaries and not really sticking to, sticking to trends. And now we are in the final chapter where I'm just gonna spend a few quick minutes to give you practical tips about having the right attitude to really craft experiences that are lovable. So first, thing, first things off, be a good listener. Like Buddha says, if your mouth is open, you're not really listening, you're not really learning. And please, please don't, don't really think like mistakes are punishment. We always grow up with this notion of like when we make mistakes, people don't like us or we fuck up, we screw things up. But it's really important in this process to learn from our mistakes, acknowledge them and keep going. And um, it's also very important that we should fall in love with the problem, not the solution. We shouldn't really feel attached to one big, nice, perfect, perfectly pixelated uh, solution that we create. We should keep iterating and really finding, finding the truth out there through a very complex path sometimes. And I want to end this on a high note um, by a quick advice from one of my design heroes, Charles Eames. In an interview, uh, when, um, when he was asked about constraints, of course he talks about like, yes, design is guided by constraints, but when the question is, well, how about design obeying laws? But constraint is enough and that's it, right? So we should really dream big, we shouldn't obey laws, we should really sometimes go with the gut because like more admire success, no guts, no glory. Thank you.